Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined by my excellent and authoritative co-host Astrid Edwards and we are discussing authority today and books which we think fall into our constructed, self-constructed category of authority. And Astrid, I thought we might start by talking about the current moment. It's the beginning of 2021 and whether or not reading and writing and the words of authority figures are being more or less appreciated? That is such a good question. And to be honest, I immediately have conflicting responses for you. I feel like people, and I include myself in this in a way, people just want to do it their own way and not be told what to do. But I also think at the same time, People want answers and they want to know what the rules are. And that's particularly in relation to a global pandemic and health. Those big things that really shouldn't be our own call. They do require expertise and knowledge and science and fact. But of course, I'm well aware that I'm living in some kind of weird post-truth world where people believe anything these days. And I guess I wish they didn't. What about you? While... I think we were starting from an extremely low base. I was actually quite heartened when it came to respect for authority during 2020. Now, of course, there are different types of authority. There are authoritarian regimes where pushing back against authority is the moral thing to do. But in a more general sense, when we're talking about civic society and institutions of government and democracy and respect for science above all, My sense, at least from the Australian perspective, is that we've moved away from reading things and writing things that quote people who have no real authority to speak in a space and we've moved to this newfound respect where we know the name of our state's chief scientist. I mean, we know the name of the deputy. I could not have told you that. 18 months ago. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that. And I have enjoyed seeing epidemiologists and scientists and people who are in charge of infection control at hospitals and doctors being brought to prominence in the debate. And that when I jump online and read an opinion column now, I can actually read one from someone who knows what they're talking about, not someone who had some feel opinions. So Jam, I kind of agree with you. I did not know any of the health officers' names before the pandemic. And I have found myself tuning into these press conferences, but I also feel like a lot of people with maybe large social media followings or some kind of platform on radio or TV, people listen to them or follow them or believe what they say. And honestly, that's just authority that comes from, I don't know, a follow account or likes or something. And Some of these people are horrendous and it disturbs me no end that someone will care about health advice from someone they find on social media as opposed to, you know, a doctor, a qualified medical professional. So I guess, do you trust everyone to follow the rules? I don't know if I do. 
I think I trust the general public to act sensibly and rationally more than I did a year and a half ago because the experience of containing the virus in Australia has involved people banding together. It has involved ordinary people being sensible. And on the most part, I think we have. I really do think we have. And today we are going to talk about two books that have a very different approach to authority. They question authority and they question where we are going as a world because of the way authority acts. So while we've just explored some of the positives that come from looking to individuals in our society as an authority because of their knowledge or experience, we're about to explore the opposite. We're about to explore what happens when those in positions of authority or power aren't making the decisions that are the best for all of us. as we are want to do on this podcast, I have brought a book by Maxine Beneva-Clark yet again, but this time I have brought a book to unpack that isn't a book she's written for adults. It's a book she's written for children. When we say Black Lives Matter is not only written by Maxine Beneva-Clark, it is also illustrated by her, which is abominably impressive. On top of that, it is written in rhyme. It's told from the perspective of a parent trying to explain to their child why black lives matter. And I think one of the many things that impressed me about this book is it's all in rhyme and it's not trite. And I think that takes incredible skill and it doesn't shy away from using the Black Lives Matter slogan. And increasingly we are seeing books for children that are written about social justice and about movements, but it's rare that a book for children will explicitly mention a movement. And I think that's really bold and I think that's really brave. And I think as a result, it makes the book equally valuable for the white parent in particular, (laughs) reading the book to their child to learn from and for the black parent reading the book to their child to be seen. Did you have a chance to have a look at this picture book? I love this picture book. I adore all of Maxine Beniba-Clark's work. We, for those listening to us, we had to have a discussion about how we couldn't let this turn into a fangirl moment about Maxine. So we are very much on the record adoring all of Maxine's work. This book came out in 2020 It was a book that Maxine had been thinking about for a while, but never had an opportunity to sell it to a publisher. In 2020, it got up and what a book this is. It's physically beautiful. It is emotionally beautiful. It is obviously very timely. And Jam, I couldn't agree more with one of your last points. This is not just a book for people who want to explain to their black children why black lives matter and open up that conversation. This is a book for white people to make sure the next generation is raised better than we were. It's a really lovely read aside from that. You know, I'm a parent, I've got a five-year-old boy. And one of the things I know is that every time you introduce a new book, you run the risk of having to read that book roughly 30,000 times. That that risk always exists, that it becomes a favourite, that eventually you're like, I just can't anything but this. And I proudly introduced 
this book to my son knowing that if we got to that point and I suspect we will, I was going to be okay with that. I know that Maxine wanted to create a book that would explain what has been happening around the world to children without causing more anxiety and trauma for black kids. She wanted a book that centered black children and that certainly white children could read and enjoy and learn from, but where they weren't centered, where they weren't the protagonist, where it wasn't written as if it was speaking to them. And I think that's an important experience for white kids to have, to read a book where the audience that's intended isn't them, where they're looking in from the outside, because that is more than often the experience of black kids who are reading picture books in a society like Australia. And what I love about the book is it's written from such a place of positivity and support and it shows the black characters supporting one another for them finding joy and this kind of common purpose in the work that they're doing. It's not a book about only fighting and hardship. It's now I'm going to sound trite, is it? but it is. It's a book about love. It is. I've heard Maxine describe the book as a book about black joy. And obviously, you know, Black Lives Matter is in the title, but the book is not expressly about Black Lives Matter, the movement. It's about black love and black joy and black hair and black music and black history and black clothing and just everything that should be put into a book. Absolutely. And something I did, Astrid, in preparation for chatting to you today was I went back and watched Maxine Beniba Clark's poetic TED talk. And like, this is from many years before she wrote when we say black lives matter. And it's before she was like proper famous. She was making a name for herself, but she wasn't a household name, so to speak. And And in that TED Talk, she describes herself as, and I'm quoting here, the Australian-born child of black migrants living on another's black colonised country just trying to find a way to be. And she talks about how her story was never represented in the books that she read as a child. And again, I'm quoting, she says, I started to realise none of those other kids reading in the library would ever read about someone like me. And she's become what she didn't have. She is being for and creating for kids like her the kind of art and stories that she wished she had as a kid. And, you know, what an absolute triumph. I think art is a really important word that you just said then. Not only is Maxine obviously excellent with words, but she is an artist. And as you mentioned before, Maxine illustrated this book I am no artist and I am not very good with any form of visual art, but I just spent the summer with my niece and I showed her all of Maxine's picture books because you don't get any kind of blank white background in Maxine's books. Everything is colour and full, right? And I basically asked my niece to copy Maxine because I was really sick of like having the grass on the bottom and then like a yellow smiley sun and some kids standing in the fake grass. And now my niece fills the whole thing. And I'm just so darn proud that my niece is copying Maxine Benibby-Clark's artistic style. I've got a non-fiction recommendation for you today, Jam. 
that means to this episode, but I think in an episode where we're talking about authority, it is the right way for us to go. Today, I would like to recommend The Lonely Century by Norena Hertz. I know you know who Norena Hertz is. I absolutely do. She is actually going to be speaking at the Future Women Summit and I am really excited. Okay, so tell me why you are that excited. And for viewers who cannot see Jamila via Zoom right now, Jam is beaming. I think Narina Hertz talks about economics in a way that centres fairness and centres people. And Hertz is also someone who humanises economics. She recognises that as people, we live in a society, not just an economy. And she talks about the human elements of what makes an economy tick and what makes sure we are all connected and what we can do to build fairer outcomes for everyone. And and this book in particular is all about loneliness. So Jam, I don't normally go about quoting Vogue, but Narina Hertz has been described as one of the world's most inspiring women and a renowned thought leader. And I guess in an episode about authority, I wanted to bring a female thought leader in what is often a really dry area like economics and global modern commentary to our listeners and to the show. This is a work on loneliness. And I think that The Lonely Century is one of those rare examples of a book that hits the shelves at the perfect moment. Now, books take years to write. This is incredibly well researched, although written in a really engaging style, but this would have taken years and it's literally coming out after the world has experienced loneliness. There's social isolation, there's social distancing, there's no physical contact where, you know, we celebrate Christmas via Zoom, whatever. All of the ways that the way we interact changed a great deal last year and we were already a lonely world. And Hertz goes into the economic cost of loneliness. She goes into the health cost, the negative health impacts of being lonely. And she goes into the political cost and looks at the rise of the right and the fact that so many, well, so many people who voted for Trump are lonely white men. That's not an excuse, but she asks the question, if we weren't so lonely, would that kind of thing happen? She is a hugely intelligent woman who is exploring these concepts with a deep grounding in the economic data, but also the social science data. She talks about selfishness, which is something I found quite compelling. And I think that's because it's rare we hear selfishness discussed or explored on a group level rather than, or a collective level, rather than an individual level. We think about people being selfish or committing selfish acts or being selfish individuals. We rarely talk about countries being selfish or entire communities being selfish. Whereas Narina Hertz talks about us becoming a world of takers rather than givers, the fact that we don't value kindness in the way we used to, the fact we and this is her quote, we've traded community for convenience. And I have been running that line through my head again and again and again since I read it. And, you know, it's it's true. We are doing all these things and behaving in such a way that goes against what human beings are are wired for, which is to be together and look after each other. So for those listening, this might sound a really depressing book. It's not. Hertz writes really well. 
This is engaging at every paragraph and she relates it very much to the real world. There are anecdotes about her own experience of being ignored on New York streets because no one looks each other in the eye anymore because that's not the social norm. She refers to great works of literature, even the work that we did in our previous season, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. That was in our loneliness episode. So this is a really important work, I think for all of us, but I love the fact that it is written by a female international thought leader. There just aren't enough of those. Another thing I really enjoyed about this book, and we are gushing today, we've got two books that we really both took to, was all the totally wild ways people try to cure their loneliness. She talks about concepts like rent a friend. She relates stories of elderly Japanese women committing crimes so they could be put in jail to avoid social isolation, which I think raises, you know, a whole other set of questions around how we treat and value the elderly in our society. There's a bloke who pays $2,000 a month for people to cuddle him, not for sex, not for sexual intimacy. He just wants a hug. And to be able to afford that, he lives in his car. And these stories are the extremes, obviously, but they're the kind of extreme where you, for a moment you go to laugh and then you re-examine yourself and I'm like, why am I laughing? That's cruel. What is going on here? What is life like for these people? And these extremes of loneliness, I think really hit home when I'm sitting on the couch reading Narina's work and not talking to my family who are all on their screens and I don't have to be lonely and yet it's exactly what I was doing when I read those parts of the book. So Jam, she calls all of that that you just described the loneliness economy, the idea that so many of us are so lonely we are prepared to pay and people are prepared to offer services for a temporary loneliness fix. Now of course it's just a temporary fix and it really asks questions about how we choose to live in the 21st century. And I also found myself laughing sometimes and then realizing I don't want to be that person who laughs. I have been lonely in my life many times and you know, the stats are horrific. And I like to think that this book is dropping at a time when we've all experienced social isolation and distancing and all the rest of it. And hopefully we have either experienced community in a way that we hadn't before, or we have decided to reach out or maybe build our own communities. So all of our futures look a bit brighter. Astrid, we have a new young woman who started in the future women office and I'm about to talk about her in a way that makes me sound positively ancient. I think I think we're less than 10 years apart. Nonetheless, I feel very ancient around her. And she's also read Narina's book and she says something to me that really struck me. She said that she read the book and she loved it. But as someone who is very much in the centre of a generation obsessed with social media and who spent her first year working in the professional workforce, her first year out of study in her bedroom because of the pandemic, she said she couldn't help but feel incredibly distressed by the book. Her comment to me was that 2020 has really accelerated human beings' path to social, emotional and physical isolation and it was something that was already happening because of technology and her fear is if you've experienced that at such a determinative period in your life, how on earth do you reverse it? 
I don't have an answer to that. And this book poses questions for us. And while there are no, there is no specific set of ways we can all fix this on an individual or a planet wide scale, Hertz does give us ways to think about our urban planning, to think about who we vote for, to think about what we look for when we look for a place to live, where we do our shopping, where we spend our money and how that can each little choice be a slightly better way of supporting community instead of always not supporting community, if, if I can phrase it in that really clunky way. No, not at all. I don't think it is clunky because we don't talk about our communities very often, right? So, of course, we're a bit clunky because it's not language we use every day. But as much as the pandemic did do a lot to further isolate us as individuals, as Narina points out, you know, the timing of this book is uncanny because she also speaks to this series of things we can do to counter loneliness that I think a lot of us did do without necessarily reading her in instruction. You know, I, I was really pleased to reach the points in the book where she did talk about the fact that we don't know our neighbours' names anymore and to think, well, hold on, no, I do. You know, if, if my if I couldn't pick up my little boy from school, there are a dozen people, literally a dozen people in my street or the street next door who I could call to help me. And I watched the outpouring of kindness in my neighbourhood at the beginning of COVID, particularly to elderly people living alone. There was a deep desire to want to support one another and to look after one another. And I think when we read these books and to Ollie in, in my office's point, when you read books like this, it's always important to actually sit up and look outside your window and remind yourself that there are good people in your life, there are good people in the world, and there are a whole lot of people who feel lonely just like you do. And it is recommendations time, which is when we get to hear what new paranormal futuristic drama book Astrid wants me to read. Astrid. The mockery jam, the utter disdain you have for my book choices in life. However, today you will be, I think, very happy with me. I am recommending A Promised Land by former President Barack Obama. I take it all back. So obviously he is an authority figure on the international stage, former US president. That is actually not why I am bringing this book up in an episode about authority. I've read a lot of political memoirs. I suspect you have read more political memoirs than I have. Mostly they're terrible. They're self-interested. They're trying to rewrite the record. They're kind of partisan. I'm, to be honest, not interested in most of them. Most politicians or most former politicians who are writing a memoir also aren't very good writers. <laughs> That's true. They either write badly or they pay a ghostwriter and it's not their own words. And therefore it feels a bit hollow. Barack Obama is an exquisite writer and I want to put forward Obama as an authority on writing. This is like reinventing the political genre and I almost found myself thinking of, you know, the old philosophical concept, the philosopher king, the idea of a leader who actually has a brain and can think through things and articulate them. Like this is rare. Now, A Promised Land is the first of a two-part planned autobiography. 
It is 700 pages, and this may be the only time I'm ever going to do this, but I actually recommend the audiobook, which is narrated by Obama and, you know, probably takes like seven hours to get through the whole thing. I have read the 700 pages of A Promised Land, but I do think that audio may be the way to go for many people. I am about three quarters of the way through the audiobook at the moment, so no spoilers, does he get a second term? And I'm really enjoying it. And the reason I chose the audiobook, I'm not usually an audiobooker, the reason I chose it was that I read Michelle Obama's biography and then everyone told me I should have done the audiobook. So this time I tried to get ahead of the curve and I am really glad I did it. Awesome. For the record, I've also read Michelle's autobiography. I love the fact that she went first and he refers to hers and maybe how he wasn't very nice to live with when he was writing and he wished he'd done a better job when she was writing hers. And I love it. So Jam, I like to think I haven't disappointed you today, but what do you have for me? I am going a little bit old school. (laughs) This season, we have very much focused on new releases, which is, I think, the way to be when we have an obsessive book-loving audience like the one we do. We don't want to recommend things that you have already read as much as possible. But when we are talking about authority and perhaps the misuse of authority in literature, I couldn't not recommend George Orwell's Animal Farm, could I? And I know a lot of you will have read this in high school and it would have been required reading and it would have come with a level of perfunctory analysis that you had to do to try and get good marks, which meant it was difficult to actually just enjoy the read. (laughs) If that's you, go back and revisit it, which is what I've done quite recently. When Animal Farm was first published, the idea was that Russia or Stalin was its target, like that's who it was going after. But you read it today and you can think of so many countries around the world and leaders and regimes where this could apply, places where freedom is attacked. George Orwell's comedy, sort of based in this farm that is taken over by the mistreated animals that used to live in it and then over time one group of the animals decide they are more equal than others is an amazing warning against tyranny and totalitarianism and it's both pro-revolution and anti-revolution all at once. I'm not selling it the way I wish to be selling it. Help me, Astrid, help me. I love this recommendation. I am one of the people who was introduced to Animal Farm. I think I got it in year eight. Did not understand it at that age. But I reckon Animal Farm is a great read if you want to read with a 16, 17-year-old in your life who is thinking about stuff. This book can be read at that age, but it raises as many deep, hard questions about our existence as there are to raise. Plus, it's really entertaining. That is, I think, the first time we have liked one another's recommendations simultaneously. Well done to us. It's never going to happen again. (laughs) That is about all we've got time for in this episode of Anonymous Was a Woman. Thank you for sharing your morning, your afternoon, your evening, your middle of the night with us. We very much appreciate it. We loved having you. Please stay tuned on Thursday when we will be speaking to Louise Milligan, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of Witness, amongst other titles. 
if you loved Anonymous was a woman, then you should tell some other people about it. You can yank a friend over to sit beside you right now and you can tell them how good the podcast you're listening to is or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can leave a rating and a review and you can subscribe. That will also help other people find the podcast. Thanks to Hachette Publishing Australia. Thank you to Future Women and thank you to Bad Producer Productions. And thanks to you, Astrid. 